Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. In San Francisco, I'm Nathan Fox, and I have two other people with me in Washington, D.C., Ben Olson. Ben, how you doing? Good. Thanks. And we have a special guest today, Nate Willis, who uh, is going to be the focus of the show, and we're going to get to know him. So, Nate, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Thanks as well. So uh, a couple episodes, we spent some time talking about diversity in the legal profession, and we said that we were looking for a black or Hispanic student that we could kind of coach toward the LSAT, ideally someone who was going to take the September LSAT. And um, just uh, that week, I actually met Nate because Nate enrolled in one of my classes, and uh, Nate agreed to come on the show. So um, I have already some test results for Nate, and he's doing awesome, but uh, I thought that we would just sort of get to know Nate a little bit. So um, Nate, you, you grew up in the North Bay, is that right? Uh, yeah, I grew up in uh, Nevada, California. So I don't know much about Nevada. What's it like? Uh, it's not too bad. Um, it's basically suburbia. You're about um, anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes away from San Francisco. Um, and it's like the northernmost part of Marin County. So uh, I'm right on the cusp between uh, Petaluma and um, like San Rafael. You went to high school there and then you went to uh, junior college. Where was that? Uh, that was in Santa Rosa. So that was in Sonoma County. Santa Rosa Junior College and then transferred to Sonoma State. Sonoma State, yep. You studied political science and government. Are you happy with your choice of Sonoma State? Uh, yeah, at the time. Uh, I have been working uh, since I've been 17 and I've been living at, and I actually have been living at home when I haven't been on internships or something um, outside of California. So it seemed like the most optimal choice to transfer from uh, SRJC to Sonoma State. And what did you think of the poli-sci and government major? Um, honestly, it, I wanted to be a communications major, <laughs> but the program was impacted. Oh, I see. Uh, so I wasn't able to take part in that. Um, but I actually grew to kind of uh, love political science. It was, uh, I, I took my first political science class my third year of junior college. And um, after that semester was when I transferred. Um, and I actually just fell in love with uh, the applications of, you know, science and mathematics, uh, rudimentary science and mathematics, but then the writing and just the, the research, the knowledge, it, it, it kind of was all encompassing. And that's what I've, I've heard people say that political science is, uh, a little too too broad, and so that's why it's not such a good major. But um, I found it very interesting. Cool. So, what um, what is it that is drawing you toward law school? Uh, honestly, uh, I've been asking that my asking myself that question for several years. Um, I I've been throwing everything I can at going to law school because. Uh, what, what you hear from lawyers and people like that is like, no, no, you don't want to go. It's too hard. You know, the job market's bad. Um, but I've always found that um, in my interactions with other people, uh, my, uh, my reasoning and, and logic, I've always loved logic games, things like that, um, which is sometimes to the chagrin of my family members uh, caused us to chafe um, <laughs> at certain times. Uh, but I uh, honestly, it was, it was, it seemed like the most natural path um, for me because it was, it was, it's, it's always been very interesting. I've always loved law. 
I've always loved community. Um, and so it seemed like the natural choice in the end for me to uh, do something with law and um, later on possibly go into something like public service or something like that. Can you name a lawyer whose job, whose life you would like to have? <sighs> Man. Um, I, I really don't want to say Barack Obama. I really don't. <laughs> um, but I, I guess, uh, is it Kamala? Is it Kamala Harris, uh, the, uh, the attorney for the attorney general for California? I would say Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. Um, uh, her, I, I, um, I've gone on a few internships abroad to DC. I was a, I was a Panetta intern, or second to last semester at uh, Sonoma State, and um, he was he was very straightforward about how he felt about Ivy League schools and Ivy League colleges. Uh huh. Um, and he seemed like Leon Panetta seemed like a very down to earth guy, um, and that's how I've always kind of envisioned myself. Um, so like, kind of like a man, you know, salt of the earth, kind of man of the people kind of person and, uh, seeing him able to, you know, come from his, uh, like he, like he told it, his immigrant family, uh, go to law school, meet his wife in Petaluma nonetheless. Um, and then go on to become as great as he has, um, really says a lot about him and his character. And so I'd have to say that, uh, Leon Panetta would be one. Got it. Okay, great. Um, so tell me a little bit about your family background. All right. Um, well, I'm both, I'm mixed. I'm a mixed, uh, mixed race origin. I'm both black and white. Um, I have no idea what, um, like what the super, you know, back heritage of uh, my family tree on my African-American side is outside of, <laughs> outside of Louisiana. Uh -huh. um, but on my white side, um, they delved back a little bit further and uh, went so far as Irish uh, German and um, French Bosque. Uh, but uh, my mom had, I grew up in Novato and then my mom um, grew up in Novato as well. Um, and she grew up with five brothers and sisters. And uh, my grandfather was a uh, biology teacher at Novato High School. Uh, he he uh, grew up in San Francisco um, and he served in the Navy. And then, uh, and my grandmother, um, I believe he met my grandmother in Hawaii when they were both stationed over there. She was teaching and uh, he was serving in the Navy. And then on my dad's side, um, my grandfather is, um, or was a mechanic. Then my grandmother was um, basically like, she, you know, she helped out families. She helped out um, older, uh, older patients or older family members that couldn't get along by themselves. And they made a fairly good life in Nevada as well, though they were both from Louisiana. Um, and so they came out here, they came out here later on um, in, in about the 19, mid 1950s um, and came out here from Louisiana and they have plenty of stories <laughs> um, of back there. Um, but yeah, like my, my home, like my home and my family is, has always been uh, Nevada. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of like an amalgamation of, uh, both of those kind of stories. I see. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your attitudes toward the test. Um, how did you feel going into the LSAT? And, and, you know, when I met you the other night, was that the first LSAT you had ever taken the first night of my class? Yes. That was the first time I've ever seen anything related to the LSAT. <laughs> yeah. Um, I never did any practice. I never, I, you know, I looked on sites, 
uh, to see like what the sections were like, but I never delved any further than that. I figured um, I'd go in as cold as ice and see what I could do based on just the knowledge I already had. Okay. And that's fairly common in my experience. Um, I, so I have your results right here in front of me, and I want to um, talk about those, and then I want to also talk about your latest test results, which are quite a bit better. So um, two weeks ago, first night of class, we took the December 2010 LSAT as a group, timed 35 minutes per section, and Nate scored uh, 23 total points on the two logical reasoning sections then uh, 13 on the reading comprehension section, and four on the logic games. That turned out to be a total of uh, 40 points, which is a 141 on the LSAT, and 15, uh, it's about 16th percentile um, on average. So, um, Ben, we talked about this a little bit on the show the other day, but uh, if you saw someone who walked in with that scoring profile, what, what would you think their chances are? Uh, well, I think it's a good starting range. I mean, it's a very normal starting range. Uh, I think this is kind of what we were talking about before, is most people start, at least in my experience, between 140 and 155, somewhere in that range. And um, if they're not doing... And, and the game section is the, the, the lowest section for them, and it's the easiest section to talk about and make progress in. So... Um, it, it sounds like a typical score uh, to me and a good, a good starting score for, yeah. for going up. I, I would call it an above-average profile for potential improvement um, just because the, I look at the ratio of reading comprehension to logic games, and when I see somebody who can score 13 on reading comprehension, that was uh, above the class average, by the way, on the first night of, of uh, class. So wow. the, the, the test, the, the total score average was 144 and a half. So you were below average on your, to, on your total score. But on your reading comprehension, I think the reading comprehension was like 12 points average for the class. So you actually are better just kind of naturally day one with no strategies or anything. You're just sort of better at the reading comprehension on average than the class. And then on the games, the class averaged nine and you got four. So... When I see that, I, I, I almost always say, listen, anybody who can read as well as you can, you can figure out these games because you're going to be able to understand the rules and then it's just a matter of learning some, some tricks. So, yeah, I would, I would say that that's an above average um, from what I've seen profile for improvement. Um, so our goal was to give Nate some uh, extra tips or some extra help, and we're still going to do that, but it's looking like he doesn't need it. Because um, on Saturday, we took another test. So this was uh, less than two weeks later. And he, Nate, this was the December 2012 test. Again, uh, you know, timed and uh, proctored. And Nate scored 31 on the logical reasoning. So that's up from 23. Uh, 14 on the reading comprehension. That's just up one. And then 14 on the logic games instead of 4 on the logic games. So he, he went from 4 to 14 plus 10. That's a total of 59 correct instead of 40 correct on the first test. And it's a 151 LSAT score, which uh, is almost the, the median. Um, that's 47, the 48th percentile uh, over the last few years. 
So I guess the first thing I want to say is congratulations uh, to you, Nate. Thank you. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Are you feeling good about that? Uh, yeah, it, it kind of, it, it adds a little bit of a, uh, it definitely builds my confidence. Let's just say that <laughs> from, uh, from my first uh, test taking. I was talking about confidence a little bit in my class last night and how, how important that is. Um, the LSAT in a lot of ways is like uh, skiing or golf or some other game where you really, if you, if you lose your confidence, you lose everything. Um, so, you know, you really should be able to build from here. Uh, you can definitely get momentum going and uh, it can really help a lot. But what, what would you attribute your success to? I mean, how do you make that kind of an improvement in, in 10 days? I know one thing, I'll, but I'll wait. I'll let you go, Nate. So how'd you do it? Well, I mean, obviously the logic games. Um, having you uh, teach us the uh, kind of the tricks of the trade when it comes to those logic games, um, I, I found myself uh, using the first rule you gave us for the logic games, which was don't go beyond what you, you, what you, you know, don't know or don't don't go beyond your limits in the logic games you have to know what you're doing before you move forward because i don't think i got past page one of the logic games on the first test okay i i did not even look at problems two or logic games two three and four okay that was on your very first practice test you did not get beyond the first page of logic games no okay um and and being able to, because uh, I, I, it just kept working in my brain. Obviously, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And I didn't have the tools yet to uh, apply it to the games. Uh, and so once I was given those tools by you uh, through your teaching, um, I was able to then, you know, get to game three in the second practice test. And, you know, I, I didn't go further than that. I didn't get to game four. Um, so that would be like probably the biggest one. So, Nate, on that first practice test, did you intentionally not get past the first game? Had I already told you that you needed to slow down before, before you even took that practice test? No, I was kind of, I was kind of saying that tongue-in-cheek uh, because oh. <laughs> I just couldn't. I couldn't go any further. I see. Um, it's kind of like trying to, I don't know, trying to run um, you know, suicides as, you know, as like a child the first time. And it's just you're just you know, basically beating yourself against a wall. Uh, but your coach is going to push you to do that. Um, but, you know, you just can't. I just lacked the tools necessary. And the, the basic tools that we've learned so far, you know, this test, the December 2012 test, the first game is really just a pretty easy sequencing game, putting things in order. And then the second game is a pretty easy grouping game, um, putting things in groups. And you've learned just a few little tools for those two types of games. Mm-hmm. And so you were able to apply them and, yeah, go from four, uh, four questions correct to 14 questions correct. Um, so that's fantastic. And again, um, congratulations. I remember one thing that you said, actually, uh, in like the first week of class, you mentioned to me that uh, on the first practice test, you had not guessed. You, you didn't bubble in any guesses. Correct. Um, I, I wanted to point that out for the listeners, since we are talking about this um, diversity issue. I wanted to point out that if people take the LSAT cold, like Nate did on his first attempt, uh, many people just take the actual LSAT cold like that. And I would you know, hazard a guess that probably blacks and Hispanics do that more often than do uh, whites and Asians, for uh, largely for socioeconomic reasons. But 
the fact that this happens is uh, just a huge detriment that can be so easily overcome with even a minimum of instruction. Um, there's no penalty for guessing on the LSAT. So if you do what Nate did and you don't finish the first game in the logic games, you really need to bubble in a bubble for the remaining 16 questions on the test because you're going to get a few of those right just from random guessing. Um, so, you know, that, that's the kind of, that's, I guess, the kind of thing that really frustrates me about this um, job because I know that my students are going to benefit so much from such a simple tip that it really feels almost unfair, like everyone should have that tip. Nate, do you feel any, um, I mean, as a half-black, half-white American, do you feel any sort of a disadvantage when it comes to standardized tests like the LSAT? Uh, not, not necessarily, um, but I have had it uh, written on many of my uh, like papers when I was uh, either younger uh, in high school um, that the, the way in which I explain like a story or the way in which I explain like a research paper um, didn't, didn't gel with the way that um, teachers normally instruct. So um, I think that the edu like the basic education system uh, doesn't deal with, and I did, I did a little bit of research on this while I was in college as well, um, about the kind of storytelling nature that is kind of embedded in black culture. Um, and, and let's say, let's say it's like a run on sentence or you're trying to get, um, a big, a big kind of theory or concept, you know, within like maybe a, a huge run on sentence or something of that nature, which in, um, in more Anglo-Saxon or, or white culture is it's more like, get to the point, please just tell me what I need to know. And that's about it. I don't want to know context. I don't want to this. I don't want to that. I just want to know exactly what the, the writer is trying to tell the reader. And I find that um, at first when I took the test or when I do take standardized tests, I can sometimes get caught up in the language, which is exactly what they're trying to do um, in any of these standardized tests. It's trying to trip up the, the test taker into kind of falling into that, that hole where it's, oh, well, look at this story. It's very interesting. It's like, no, you need to be able to give us this or you need to be able to glean this amount of information from the text in this period of time, or else you will not be passing this test. And I think that's just a, a discrepancy in, in just cultural backgrounds. Interesting. I mean, I guess the test is in, in some ways, it's so specific. It's, it's demanding, like, they're going to lay out a, an argument which they feel is a flawed way of thinking, and then they're going to see if you take that next little leap where you kind of side with the author. And if, if you like listen to them, if you believe them, then you fall into one of the LSAT's many little traps. I'm, I'm obviously talking about the logical reasoning now. But this does, even this sort of thing happens on the games too. I mean, there's definitely like traps that are written into mm -hmm. the games. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you, if, if, you, if you're like nodding along with the listener or with the reader, the, the author of the passage in the logical reasoning, if you're nodding along there, you fall into these traps and then the LSAT just immediately punishes you for it. Like, nope, you need to be thinking in this straightforward way right here. You have to do it this way. Um, so it, that it's interesting to me that you're saying that, that you're feeling a little bit of that on the, on the LSAT. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I think I can, I can learn, to, I can learn to like let go of certain habits that won't benefit me on the test, 
but without instruction, there's probably no way I could have done any better. Like it's just impossible. Well, you you have obviously the raw talent to to do. I mean, at least as well as the the national average on the LSAT. You you made this amazing ten point improvement over ten days. So I'm 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 really just like I can't wait to see what's going to happen next. <laughs> Thank um, you. So for the listeners, we intend to come back to Nate um, again on future episodes. We're also going to give him some extra pointers along the way. So, Nate, is there anything right now, um, or are there multiple things right now, that are confusing you about the test? Are there questions that you're consistently missing? Is there one area of the test that you feel like you really need extra help? Um, honestly, it's, it's not so much um, what I'm doing. It's the speed with which I do it. Um, my ability to, uh, to, to kind of... I don't know, to, to, like I said, get the relevant information from the readings, um, like kind of like whether it's underlining a main point or something along that nature. Um, I ha- I'm just not up to speed yet. I, um, I have spoken with other students and they say that they do get to the end. Um, but their, their, um, their scores also reflect that they've, you know, kind of rushed through some problems. So I'm, I'm, I'm more at the back end of that where it's, um, I just don't think I've got kind of gotten, um, all the, all the jargon down, all the information down, um, to, to really be able to give myself a shot at getting full points on each of the sections. Okay. I have quite a few I have a few bullets written down of things that I'd like to talk about there. Um, but Ben, do you have any specific advice for time? Well, I, I do have uh, specific thoughts about the games, for example. I think, Nate, you said that you got through three of the games, right? Yeah, I, uh, I made it to just, just under time. I got to the, uh, the end of the third game. Which is very, I mean, even that's actually pretty good, um, just starting out. Uh, you know, a lot of times people can only get through two of the games and then eventually they get through three and then eventually they get to, to hopefully all four. But my, I guess my thought would be, and maybe you're already doing this, so just stop me if this is, is redundant, but I would say definitely go and then do that fourth game when you're done with the test so you're done with it now. Make sure you figure it out. And then for, for all the games that you did, um, I would go back and do them all again until you can get them down to five to seven minutes, zero wrong. Um, I tell people to do this a lot, and a lot of times when they redo games that they've already done before, they're, they, know, they get to know the answers pretty quickly. But the, the point here isn't to choose the right answer as much as it is to go through all the steps as fast as you need to go through them to finish them in five to seven minutes. To prove the right answer, not just to remember, oh, this one is B, um, but to like prove it to yourself that the answer is B. Yeah, exactly. And, and to go through the steps of drawing out the main original diagram, to draw out any diagrams you need for the specific questions. And if you do that, um, sometimes, sometimes you have to redo a game three or four times to get it down to five to seven minutes, zero wrong. And sometimes you have to do it more, but sometimes, you know, fewer times. But whatever it takes, um, you're sort of, at least in my mind, you're drilling that game into your head so that you, you not only know it, but you know what it feels like to move that quickly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that I have not, I have not uh, redone games yet. 
so yeah, that's actually fantastic advice. Yeah, I think that's great. And and to add to that, I would um, keep track of your progress. So like for the test that you took, I think you said it was December 2012. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would write game one, game two, game three, game four on a piece of paper or an Excel sheet or something like that. And then I would know how many times I had done each game, how long they took me, and how many I got wrong. So that you can start seeing your progress, especially when you look back. Like when you do future tests and then you look back at this December 2012 test, you'll see that maybe you had to repeat the games, some of the games once, some of the games three or four times. But in the future you'll see that you don't have to repeat some games on future tests and maybe the harder games you'll only have to repeat twice. So you can sort of see, you know, progress not only in terms of your score, but also just in terms of how quickly you're catching on to the new games that you're, you encounter. Okay, yeah, that's great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. The, the one broader point that I would make about speed is that generally students strive for speed, and I think that that's a big, I think that you can go wrong with that very quickly, and that what you should be striving for instead is the accuracy part. So when I, I mean, I agree with the with Ben's idea of redoing games and, and seeing how you can do them faster and faster, but what we're really going for is we want you to understand deeply the game, and we want you to, to be able to work this process consistently to answer the questions with perfect accuracy and then you know move on to the next one in a reasonable amount of time. Um, so it's not like a, not so much sprinting to try to get to the end. It's, it's more like just methodically working through the questions, you know, digesting the games and spitting out the correct answers. Um, so I, I, would, I would really just make sure that you ha- are keeping the accuracy high. Um, when, when Ben is saying, zero wrong he means zero wrong yeah no thanks for pointing that out that's exactly right i mean sometimes sometimes the first time we redo a game it may take 15 minutes maybe 20 minutes and some people say oh that's so long like why am i even timing this but if if it took them 20 minutes and they were going through the right process and developing the right habits i don't really care that it took them that long because that that's gonna that initial start time is gonna drop as you do more and more of these games, but at least they went through it correctly and they developed the right habits instead of developing habits where you're just kind of guessing or jumping through answers. So no, exactly. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, um, it, it's it's uh, speed comes from accuracy. So if you just if you just hammer on getting them right, consistently getting them right, and yeah, I love the idea of redoing games and making the connections. And Ben said understanding what it feels like to, to do it the right way. Um, that's a wonderful reason to redo games. So that's a great tip. Um, did you say something about, or maybe I misheard you, Nate, but did you say something about underlining the main point? Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't mean uh, from the logic games. I guess that's what we're on right now. Um, no, I no, mean, no. Oh. No, I, I, I thought you meant to, on the, either the reading comprehension or the logical reasoning. Okay. Uh, yeah, I meant from like uh, logical reasoning. I found myself um, underlining them when we were going over them uh, in class last night. Um, the the idea is that the, the what the what the um, writer or the arguer is trying to to get what what point they're trying to make, and how you're going to either strengthen that point, find the justification for that point, or how you're going to tear it apart. Um, and 
knowing like what what words are are uh, essential and what words are just fluff, uh, I think is a probably a good step is a step in the right direction to getting there. So you you've been actually physically underlining the main point of the arguments. I actually didn't start doing it until last night when I was going over it with. Uh, oh, just when you're reviewing it. I see. When I was, okay. when I was yeah, when I was well, when I was reviewing the test, that that's how I, I did. It. I have not been doing that, taking like the questions from your logical reasoning book or anything like that for the first time. No, I have not. Um, ben, do you recommend that people underline at all? Uh, I don't actually. No, I don't um, either. No. In fact, in, in reading comp, I see a lot of people underlining sometimes almost the whole thing, right. which de definitely is not good. I guess when people underline specific things, I'm not opposed to it. But usually I ask them why they're underlining certain things, and their reason is, oh, it's it's sounded important. And it turns out it, it just was a, a, a weird phrasing or something, and that caused them to underline it, and it's not really a purpose-based underline. But personally, myself, I, I never underline anything, so I don't usually talk about it. Yeah, um, and Nate, I'm not, I, I know that you weren't suggesting that this is actually a strategy that you would use, so don't think we're picking on you. But I, I do want to point out that what Ben says is that you know he'll, he'll look over the shoulder of a uh, student who has underlined um, something in the reading comprehension passage, and uh, it will totally not be important. Um, I see that all the time. I really want to emphasize this, that people who are doing the underlining because you think it helps you on the reading comprehension, I'm worried that it's really not because you're, I think a lot of times they're underlining things that they don't understand maybe. Like, oh, I didn't get that, so that must be really important. And a lot of times it's like, no, it's the exact opposite of that. This was some thing that's totally ancillary to really the argument. You didn't really have to understand every single word on the reading comprehension. And then, they'll, yeah, they'll just have sections that are underlined that are not at all the main point. Um, mm -hmm. I guess, you know, knowing the main point, that's great. <laughs> Once you do, if you want to underline it, fine. But if you're just underlining things and kind of wishing them to be the main point, that's not really going to get it done. Okay. Um, but no, I, I, it sounds like you're not underlining at all, Nate, so um, that's, that's cool. Um, any other particular challenges other than speed right now? Um, I, I guess you went over it um, last night. Uh, one of the questions I got wrong was the partially question you were talking about. Um, I don't know if you have the question on hand or if you, um, I'm sure you remember it, uh, but the, the idea that, you know, the dried parsley might, in fact, be the second tastiest parsley in the world, and then the the um, the cooked or the 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 fresh parsley is the best. Um, and the strength of the argument that you're looking for um, in certain scenarios, whether it's um, I don't know if it was like a strengthener versus um, like a necessary or sufficient assumption question, um, but. But, but gauging the strength with which I'd like to make my argument uh, based on the evidence presented in the, in the logical reasoning question or reading comprehension or what have you, um, that's where I find some, a, a little bit of a, um, uh, I don't know, a, a discrepancy. A lot of that is probably related to recognizing the question type. Um, the question mm -hmm. type that you're talking about, I'm almost positive, is a necessary assumption question. And I'm going to... 
I, I, sorry, Nathan, I'm going to interject there. I think that's sufficient assumption. Not, I could be wrong because I don't have it in front of me, but... Oh, okay. I, I was going to try to paraphrase the argument. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't have it uh, on hand either. That was a December 2012 question, and we, we can't like, read it verbatim, but... Um, Okay, I, have, yes. I have it right here. Do you want me to read it? No, we can't. We can't read it verbatim <laughs> oh, because yeah, of our I'm sorry, I'm sorry. sack. <laughs> sorry, I apologize. Oh, stop. Okay. How about this, Ben? Or how about this, Nate? Read us the question stem. Just the question stem. Just the question stem. Okay. Uh, which one of the following principles, if valid, most clearly helps to justify the argument above? Okay. I talked about That's this a little actually, bit. Yeah, well, go ahead, Ben. Oh, yeah, so I was just going to say, I mean, it's a strengthening question because yeah. it's technically not asking it to, not asking us to justify the conclusion, but strategically, it's almost exactly the same as a sufficient assumption question because of, I don't know, just the way these questions tend to be, yeah, right, and, for the most the helps answer, to justify. The correct answer uh, was would have been the correct answer if this was a sufficient assumption question. So yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah. It is it is a sufficient assumption question. And then so Nate, here's the quiz. Then since it's a sufficient assumption question, do you want a strong, medium, or weak answer? Um. Um. I I'm gonna say. Strong, simply because it resembles a strengthened question. Um, and that's probably why I would say strong, which is probably the wrong reason, but I think it's the right answer. Um, no, I think it's the right answer for the right reason. So sufficient assumption questions and strengthened questions, you just want to help the argument as much as you can. So you're being asked, you know, which one of these five additional facts would you like to include in your case? And it's it's not about what's actually true, and it's not about what has to be true. It's about which one would you like to be true if you wanted to help your client to win his case. And your client in that situation is the argument itself. So you're, you're wanting to connect as best you can, connect the evidence that you have to the conclusion you want. And on a sufficient assumption question, the correct answer would uh, actually have to prove the conclusion of the argument. So that if you take the uh, existing evidence that's in the argument and you take whatever answer choice you pick, A, B, C, D, or E, it, we combine those two things and you would necessarily get to the conclusion of the argument. You can't avoid the conclusion of the argument. You have to win your case. Well, this specific question, since it said, again, for the reader, uh, listeners, it said something like, which one of the following principles, if true, most clearly justifies or does the most to justify? Um, it's the word most there that makes us take it out of the sufficient assumption category and put it into the strengthen category. But still, if you're trying to strengthen an argument, you want, the, the, you want to prove the argument, ideally. So uh, Ben said it right away that on a strengthened question, if you can find an answer that would be a sufficient assumption of the argument, i.e. that would prove uh, the conclusion of the argument, then that's definitely the one you're going to pick on either a strengthened or on a sufficient assumption question. So, all right, so Nate, you got that one right. So I'm going to ask you another one now. Um, what if this was a necessary assumption question? Then what kind of a strategy would you be using? Um, you'd be looking for one that 
that must be true. So therefore you wouldn't want too strong of a statement because it's possibility of being false. Okay. When, when you say you're looking for one that must be true, can you expand on that? What do you mean it must be true? Um, in order for the, um, the speaker's argument to make any sense whatsoever, um, the following statement must be true. Awesome. What do you think, Ben? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Can you state that, uh, Nate, can you state that in the negative, or can you talk to me about the, the, uh, what happens if you negate the correct answer? Oh. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> that got me thinking real hard. Um, You're doing awesome so far. Uh, so if you negate it, um, so if it were to be <laughs> negated, then it would prove the argument wrong? Awesome. Spoken like a true prodigy. <laughs> I'm amazed. That's, that's awesome, man. I, I mean, so you just made me made my day as a teacher because you know I. It's like my whole mission is to get people to understand what you just explained, and so that is totally awesome. That you just basically nailed the the essence of a sufficient assumption question and you nailed the essence of a necessary assumption question. And knowing the difference between those two things really makes a difference. Um, I would say that that is probably a topic that is kind of above your current level of scoring, Nate. So usually if I'm talking about to somebody about the difference between a sufficient assumption and a necessary assumption, it's usually people who are like in the 160s and trying to get to one. 65 or 170. Um, it's not usually people who are scoring 150. So anyway, um, I would say <laughs> that your upside is uh, quite high. I'm, I'm very happy. Thank you. Um, are, are there any um, logical reasoning question types that you are still a little bit uncomfortable with? Um, I... Jeez, oh, uh, I guess there there was one that I really uh, found. Oh no, I guess that's also a necessary assumption one. Um, I'm I'm essentially just looking at the test right now, and I'm just thinking um, which ones I have the most problem with. Um, but it, it seems it seems that it, um. I guess can I can I read you uh, the the question or, or the question? Yeah, you can um, read the question. Sure, the question stem. I I think we call that. Stem. If you yeah, you can you can go ahead and read that. Um, the argument requires assuming which one of the following. Ah, okay. Um, and I am not exactly sure. It it seems like it's a. Um, a necessary assumption question. Okay. But I have a tough time when they uh, change the wording. Okay, so do you, can, you, can you say... Um, okay, so this question says the argument assumes requiring... No, it says the argument requires assuming. Oh, yeah, okay. The argument requires assuming. Okay, and you say you think that's a necessary assumption question, but you're not 100% sure. No, and I definitely wasn't sure when I was taking the test. I'll tell you that much. 
Okay. Um, what would a necessary assumption question sound like? Like, which one would you be pretty confident it is a necessary assumption question? I don't know. Uh, maybe which one of the following is most strongly supported by the information above? So that I would just call a must-be-true question. Okay. It's kind of like a soft must-be-true question. Um, you're right that necessary assumption questions and must-be-true questions are pretty tightly related. They are very similar. Um, but on necessary assumption questions, usually the answer is not actually stated. It's just assumed. Whereas on a most strongly supported uh, question, the uh, correct answer is probably on the page somewhere. It's, it's probably, okay. They probably said it. Um, not always, but probably. So anyway, we've found an area, Nate, where you can um, actually learn something, which is you, are, you, you need some practice in question identification. So uh, I can give you a little drill for question identification. Well, it's not really a drill, but you've got my encyclopedia, and you've been doing the homework, right? So, yeah. So turn to the necessary assumption section of the encyclopedia, and just look at the questions. Just go through and look at the question stems. Um, and read through like 10 or 20 of those question stems in the necessary assumption category. And then from seeing 10 or 20 of those question stems, you're going to recognize what, okay, this is what a necessary assumption question looks like. Mm. But the, the question that you read, uh, the argument requires assuming which one of the following. That is definitely a necessary assumption question, and it's the word requires which makes that a necessary assumption question. Requires means okay. can't live without it, right? I require my head to be attached to my body or else I will die. If my head is not attached to my body, then I definitely will die. So having my head attached to my body is necessary. All right. Or required. Or whatever. But if you read through 10 of those question stems, you'll have a pretty good idea. And then to contrast that, you can go read also sufficient assumption question stems, and you can read like must be true question stems. Um, and I think that will be pretty helpful for you to, to more quickly identify or more surely identify the type of question that you're dealing with. Awesome. Ben, you have uh, anything to add to that? Sure, yeah. Although it's kind of a shortcut, and I, I don't, I, I think it's more important to focus on what the question seems to actually be asking. One thing that does seem to be consistent about these question stems is that if it has the word assumes in it and it has the word if, then you're looking at a sufficient assumption. Whereas if it has assumes and then there's some word that basically means necessary, like requires or, or necessary or depends on essential, something like that, then you're looking at a necessary assumption. But necessary assumption questions do not have if. Let, let me just cl clarify. I think I could write a necessary assumption question with the word if in it. What I, but I wouldn't say is uh, which one of the following, if assumed, would allow the conclusion to be properly drawn. That's definitely a sufficient assumption question. So the phrase if assumed um, certainly is going to be a sufficient assumption question. But uh, I think I could say, like, which one of the following uh, must be assumed if the conclusion is to be properly drawn. Or if the yeah. I think then that has to be a necessary assumption question. Yeah, I've, I wonder, um, I've tried to keep an eye out for necessary assumption questions that have if in them. And I, oh, I don't okay. think, 
Uh, but it, yeah, well, it, hey. it's definitely a valid point. It could be written in such a way that it has if in there. So it's more like what you're saying when if comes right with assumed. We need to crowdsource this. So um, yeah. Nate and uh, all of our listeners, if you run across a sufficient assumption question that uses the word, or uh, a necessary assumption question that uses the word if in the question stem, uh, please send it our way so that we can uh, talk about it because I think that's yeah. a great idea. So you've been you've been looking for those for a while, Ben, and you haven't run across them? Yeah, just because a lot of people get those mixed up, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I really do want to emphasize that I, I don't think <laughs> shortcuts are a good way to think about question stems yeah. because a lot of times question stems will have words like um, properly inferred and people will say, oh, this is an inference question or a must-be-true question, but that, that actually has nothing to do with the fact that it's an inference question or whatnot. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, you have to be careful. But because of the fact, I think there's some legitimate there's a, a, a point to be made here about if, because if is introducing the sufficient condition, like in an if-then statement, the if clause is the sufficient condition. Yep. So it's not surprising that in sufficient assumption questions, they're going to use the word if, and in necessary assumption questions, they're, they're not. So there is like some logical basis for that idea. But yeah, you definitely have to be careful. Interesting. I mean, I guess there's probably necessary assumption questions that say only if. I don't think I've ever seen that either. Okay, so if anybody sees a question, an assumption question uh, that is not a sufficient assumption question using if or only if, please let us know because we, we would love to uh, geek out, obviously, about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. About that topic. Um, cool. So you've got a couple uh, drills to take away there. Oh, I wanted to point out one thing. I yelled at one of my uh, students last night. Well, I don't know if I yelled, but I, w- I was quite stern, I think, with one of my students because I wanted to get a point across. I said, this is a such and such type of a question. I don't remember what type of a question it was. Let's say it was a weakened question. I, he, I, he, I said, this is a weakened question, and blah, blah, blah. I started teaching, the, going through the argument, going through the answer choices, and he said, what, how, what word told you this was a weakened question? And he like insisted that he wanted to know what word it was that, that clued me in to know that this was a weakened question. And I simply said, wrong. You know, that, that is not incorrect, invalid question. Um, there is no one word that told me what type of a question this is. So um, I think your tip is really good, Ben, but uh, I would certainly caution all of the listeners to be very careful about taking the kind of a shortcut where you see exactly Ben's example of properly inferred just because it says properly inferred, this could definitely be uh, almost any type of a question. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah you, you got to definitely watch out for that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm keeping this advice very narrowly to necessary and sufficient assumption. Yeah, that's, that sounds very sensible. Um, okay, well, we've been going for, I guess, almost an hour. Um, do... Uh, Nate, do you have any other questions or, or areas that you'd like to get into? Uh, not, not, not at the moment. I think I've got plenty of stuff that I can be doing um, now that I've gotten your guys' advice. How many hours a week would you say you're currently devoting to your LSAT study? Um, but besides your class, um, I've, been, I've been going to the library uh, after work on my off days. Uh, so Monday, Wednesday, uh, not on Friday, um, for about... Anywhere from two to three hours. Okay. Um, it helps me beat the traffic or, or skip the traffic. Yeah, right. <laughs> Go 
going the other direction. Um, but then also I go on the weekends for about maybe two to three hours. So I'd say uh, roughly nine hours not in class studying. Okay, and then in class is uh, four hours on Tuesday night, four hours on Thursday night, and you've been coming to the proctored practice tests on Saturday. So you're, you're putting in a pretty hefty, I would say, part-time job right now studying for the LSAT. Yes, sir. Well, I mean, for the listeners, uh, that might not be exactly what you wanted to hear, but uh, I, I think you can take some encouragement away from that, that, that Nate has made this a part-time job, and he's improved his LSAT score by 10 points in uh, two weeks. So uh, we look forward to getting back with you again, Ben, uh, sometime soon. Or, uh, Nate, sorry, sometime soon. Uh, ben, I was just going to say, do, do you have any other questions uh, pointers or anything you want to talk to Nate about? No. Um, it was nice to meet you, Nate, and I look forward to hearing what happens next. So, Yeah, we'll, we'll check in um, next time we, uh, we talk, I don't know, maybe in a couple weeks, and we'll see, uh, see if he's made even more awesome progress to share with uh, the listeners. All right. Thank you very much. All right, thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.